The following program contains views, ideas, and opinions that have been produced by the host DJ and their guests, and are not reflective of the views of WRFL or its underwriters. For questions, comments, or concerns, please email programming at wrfl.fm. Who listens to the radio anymore? We do. WRFL Lexington. Hello, I'm Noel Oldham, and you're listening to Campus Voices on WRFL Lexington. This is a program where we take a look at the issues affecting the Lexington and UK campus communities. Right now, Congress is trying to hammer out another federal aid bill to support Americans amid the ongoing pandemic. The last federal aid bill provided over $3 trillion in aid on state and local levels. Now, Democrats and Republicans are trying to determine the best way forward with the next aid bill. Here to help us understand the politics of that, we have Dr. Stephen Voss, Professor of Political Science here at the University of Kentucky. And to help us break down the economics of it all, we're joined by Dr. Kenneth Trotsky, the Chair of Economics here at the University of Kentucky, as well as a research fellow with the Institute for the Study of Labor in Bonn, Germany. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. So since the start of the pandemic, the United States has seen the worst economic drop in its recorded history and record high unemployment numbers. In April alone, there were over 20 million job losses, according to CNBC. The Wall Street Journal reports that the last fiscal quarter was the worst on record as the economy shrunk by 5%. Dr. Trotsky, in the second quarter of 2020, the United States' gross domestic product fell 9.5%, the equivalent of 32.9% annual rate of decline, effectively wiping out five years of growth. How does this compare to previous drops in GDP that we've seen? Uh, well, um, it's uh, on a quarterly basis, uh, it's the largest one we have ever seen. Um, if it continues on an annual basis, it would be the largest, it would again be the largest one we'd ever seen. Um, so I, I think on it, if, if it, if it continues on an annual basis, it will wipe out the, the gains we've seen in recent years. Um, I think if it rebounds back, obviously it won't. Um, uh, but it was, uh, there was a tremendous hit. The economy took a tremendous hit. Um, we, we essentially, we, meaning you know, people in the United States, uh, people all over the world, shut down their economies. I think it's notable that, that Germany, Germany had a larger uh, contraction than, than we did, and, and much of Europe did, uh, and the EU did as well. Um, you know, sir, what makes this so unusual is that um, we did it ourselves. We, that was a decision that we made to simply shut down the economy to try to fight the spread of this uh, virus um, and to limit the pandemic. Um, which makes it a very odd and unusual re uh, recession that we are in now. Typically, recessions result from things that we we do, but only indirectly and don't know we're doing. This is something we did on purpose. And how likely do you think it is that we will rebound from this? So, you know, if if you were looking at what had happened in previous recessions, you'd say, you know, it's probably the last several recessions have been sort of have been recessions in which we've had fairly slow recoveries, um, particularly slower recoveries in employment. Um, but again, uh, the, the recession we're in now, what we've just gone through, is completely different than almost anything we've ever seen before. I mean, the closest you could come to it would be to you know, under, try to study the impact of the economy on uh, going into a war. 
um, because essentially that's that's sort of what we were doing. We were kind of going into a war to fight this uh, the spread of the virus, the coronavirus, um, and and this is how we chose to do it. Um, so uh, that means that models that you would use to predict a recovery um, aren't are, may not be particularly applicable. Um, you know, if you look at the the CBO. CBO put out a projection, a 10-year projection in January about where the economy would be in 10 years from now. Um, they revised that projection in May and they revised it again this month. Um, their revised projection now is that 10 years from now, we will have not caught up to where they thought we were, would be in 10 years. Um, that's quite a, that, you know, that's quite a strong statement because typically coming out of recessions, you do eventually catch up to where you would have been in the absence of a recession in the idea you, you grow faster coming, you grow fairly fast coming out of a recession. Um, CBO is saying we're not, uh, we won't. Um, and, and there are a bunch of smart people at the CBO. So I think that, that, you know, we need, we need to listen to what they say and, and think about it seriously. I, I would say you, any predictions, you should always take predict 10 year projections with a, with a large grain of salt. And I think right now it should be an even larger grain of salt um, because, again, what we did is so very unusual um, and there's so much uncertainty. Um, are we going to come up with a vaccine? Are we going to come up with a vaccine this fall, um, this winter, you know, before before the start of the spring semester? Um, what's the spread going to have we peaked that we've had the second wave? Has it peaked? Um, is it going to go down? Um, you know, and in some sense, part of what we're doing, trying to do is simply try to make what they say flatten the curve. Um, you know, at some point we either have to develop immunity to the, to the, um, to the coronavirus, like we've developed immunities to the flu and things like that, or we have to come up with a vaccine. Um, uh, and so when that occurs is just anybody's guess. But, but what we have to do to sort of slow the spread of this virus and, and what we are, uh, what governments decide to do, um, I think is, is going to play a large role. And, you know, if you can, if you can guess what, what, you know, the governor or, or, or even the president is going to be doing tomorrow, um, much less, you know, several weeks from now or what Congress is going to do. Yeah. You're, you're a better predictor than I am forecaster than I am. Dr. Voss, what political effect can we expect this economic decline to have, especially in an election year? Well, you were right to ask Professor Trotsky the first question and follow up with me, because one of the things we do know about political impact is that the economy usually drives outcomes. And if the economy is doing poorly, the party of the president suffers from the presidential election almost all the way down. When the economy is doing well, the party of the president is rewarded. Uh, and again, not just in a presidential election, but uh, across much of the ticket. Now, if we were only going by what has happened so far economically, yes, as Professor Trotsky told you, the, the drop most recently was really bad. But if you talk about the sort of political implications, the like to how much have people suffered as a result of the downturn so far, the answer is they haven't suffered very much at all between unemployment compensation and uh, the stimulus checks that people got. Um, the signs are that so far, people are not sinking deeply into debt. Um, uh, recent studies showed that, if anything, people's debts have gotten better. 
since the pandemic that they've been paying off their credit cards and working themselves out of a, a financial hole. Uh, just on Sunday, the Herald Leader headline was Kentucky avoids projected 457 million budget shortfall. It was good news about what was happening to the state budget compared to what was expected. Unless we start getting really bad news that really starts hitting people's pocketbooks in a serious way, you're not likely to see the economic backlash that uh, normally a downturn would have been producing by now in terms of, of political impact. Now, Professor Trotsky also compared uh, what we're doing right now to a war. Also, political scientists know a little something about how the public usually responds to war, to the extent we could carry over the analogy, which is at first, when we face a challenge, at least from a foreign foe, uh, people rally around the flag. And there's a positive bump for the president and the president's party. Uh, Donald Trump got a little bit of a bump uh, initially uh, when the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic first started striking. But we also know that as that war drags on, as they go longer and longer and don't see sufficient improvement, people start to punish the president's party. Uh, and this war, such as it is, has been dragging on a long time. Uh, and we have a comparison, which is we can see how it's going in Italy. We can see how it's going in New Zealand. We can see how a similar war has played out in other countries. Uh, it doesn't look too good for the U.S. handling of the crisis. Once again, we would expect the president's party to be to be punished. And judging from the polls in terms of the presidential election, judging in terms of the polls for the coming Senate election, uh, right now the electorate is on target to punish the GOP pretty harshly. As I mentioned in the introduction, in the previous aid bill, there was over $3 trillion provided from the federal government, which included $293 billion in stimulus checks. Dr. Trotsky, what sort of effect did this first aid bill have on the economy? Well, I think it had a pretty profound uh, effect, as Professor Voss has already indicated. Uh, I, getting, you know, um, since we're going with the war analogy, I kind of, you know, and since I threw it out there, I'm going to continue, continue with the thought. Uh, one of the things when you fight a war, you know, what you do is you, you know, the government basically steps in and starts buying things up and, and pays people to go overseas to fight the war um, in, the in the form of soldiers. Uh, in this case, one of the ways to view what the government did is it wanted people to stay home and fight the war. That's what we thought they were the best way to fight that war was. So they paid people to stay home um, in, in a very serious way. Uh, you know, we're going to take what you would have caught if you lost your job or if you can't work um, because of some aspect of uh, the virus, and, um, then we're going to pay you. For, you know, if, if you think you're immune compromised and you need to stay home, we'll pay you to stay home um, and, and, and pay people that they typically wouldn't pay for staying home. You know, Uber drivers and other gig economy workers, all of us and, you know, people who are self-employed receive, receive payments and pretty generous payments, an additional um, you know, $600 a week. That's a lot of, you know, whatever you would qualify for in unemployment benefits plus a, plus a bunch of money on top of it. Um, a serious amount of money. And, you know, I think there have been a study coming out of the University of Chicago that showed some um, large percentage of people who were receiving those checks. And, I, you know, 50, 60 percent of the people were getting more money than they would have if they were working. So um, and as Professor Voss indicated, all of a sudden people started paying off their credit card debt, which is, you know, and, and, and debt levels fell, which is very, very unusual. It's not what you'd expect. Um, but we did shut down the economy 
but we kind of shut it down in, in interesting ways. So it has effects. It has big effects some places, big negative effects some places, but actually big positive effects other places. So eating and drinking establishments. You know, if you were uh, what they what you know a white tablecloth sit down primarily sit down restaurant, you got hammered. But if you were a restaurant that could um, do carry out, you did better than you thought you were going to do. Actually, uh, I think grocery stores did better than they thought they were going to. You know, I think a lot of grocery stores started laying off workers initially, but then they're like, whoa, 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 we need people to start coming back. Um, and uh, but um, other you know non-essential retail, that's it. Um, if you, uh, you know, you look at Fayette Mall, the owners of Fayette Mall are teetering on Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They've missed two debt payments already and, and may miss a third one, um, at which point they'll file bankruptcy. Uh, the auto industry got na- got hammered. Uh, travel industry got hammered. You know, air- airlines, cruise ships, you know, cruise lines, they got hammered. Other industries, construction st- seems to be doing okay. Um uh, the, the housing industry is actually going quite well. People all of a sudden have decided that maybe living in a building where you're riding in, uh, up and down an elevator with a bunch of people you don't know isn't the greatest thing in the world. So all of a sudden they're thinking, maybe I don't want to live in New York City. Um, I want to buy a house in Connecticut or, or, you know, Westchester County outside of New York. So housing sales are going really well. Housing sales in Lexington are doing well. Um, home renovations. Um, um, I'm actually in the process of trying to renovate our kitchen. Um, and you know, there's a long backlog. Um, that plus the fact that, um, you know, supply chains have been seriously affected. So your ability to get plywood and things like that for homeowners is, is affected. Oil, the oil industry took a big hit because people aren't driving very much. Um, and they're not flying airplanes very much. So some industries got hit hard. Other industries, um, have done quite well. Um, you know, I, I, you know, people t- hold up Amazon. I think Amazon would prefer not to be in the situation we're in. They're certainly shipping. They're certainly delivering a lot of things, but they have a, a elevated cost because they're trying to get d- uh, delivery drivers and, and they, they, their supply chain has been impacted. So, you know, on net, it had a it hasn't had a negative impact in, on the economy. You know, obviously we saw that the 32 percent decline, but it's it's very specific industries, whereas other ones have have, have done well. And, and some workers, obviously, some workers have done better than others. Uh, workers who have the ability to work from home, like Professor Voss and myself, um, less of an impact. Um, people who don't have the ability to work from home, um, um, have, have, some of them have lost their jobs. Um, and then the other thing, too, is if, if you need childcare to be able to work, if you're a single mom, boy, then, then, then you're really suffering, too, because... You know, when schools shut down, when childcare shuts down, um, then you struggle to figure out how you're going to, you can't work your, you can't work in your job. Um, so, so that's not very helpful. Um, and, and those are the, you know, the conflict that we have of how do we isolate people and, and, and slow the spread of the virus while not simply destroying the economy. Um, and, and that, that's that inherent, inherent tension that then spills over in the political theater which is what we see in, in Congress. Dr. Voss, as Dr. Trotsky mentioned, many low-wage workers don't even make $600 a week when they're working. Do you expect that this will cause for more calls for raising the minimum wage? Oh, I've seen people try to turn the uh, success of the stimulus into a, a variety of arguments for how essentially public policy after the pandemic's over should uh, imitate some of the emergency measures that were put in place. 
you know, one of the, uh, it's considered a more radical uh, social welfare proposal that was backed by Andrew Yang in the presidential election and by Charles Booker in the Kentucky Senate election was a universal basic income where everybody's guaranteed some level of income from the state uh, right off the bat and then you maybe go earn more through uh, your productive labor. Uh, and, and some have said, well, that stimulus check is, is like a UBI, like one of these uh, guaranteed incomes, and uh, we should just keep on doing it and keep on stimulating the economy by, by putting, just putting money in the pockets of people who are poor or underemployed and the like. Uh, and, and you will continue to hear arguments along those lines. I don't know that uh, it will necessarily come in the form of a demand for uh, an increase in the minimum wage, uh, especially if the goal is to get more people back into the workforce. Um, you know, if you, if you create barriers to employing people, uh, the, the political backlash against those proposals usually will be, will be steeper. Uh, that's the concern with the universal basic income. That's a concern with the unemployment benefits that were better than what people got from working is that it made it more uh, attractive not to work uh, and therefore maybe we'll be slower at recovering uh, as a result of such policy. Republicans and Democrats have their own versions of what they want to see in the next aid bill. House Democrats passed a $3.4 trillion package in May that would extend $600 unemployment payments and provide $1 trillion more in state and local aid. Senate Republicans more recently released their $1.1 trillion package, and it includes scaled back unemployment benefits and more funding for small business loans. Dr. Trotsky, what would the impact of scaling back benefits for unemployed people be when sources of income aren't guaranteed? So, I mean, I think it, it, it is clear, or I think it's fairly clear, when you pay people to do something, they, lots of them usually do it. So if you give somebody $600 a week to stay at home, you're going to have a lot of people staying at home. Um, if you pay them less than $600 a week to stay at home, Fewer of them will stay home. Um, you got to so, so I think it's, I, 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 you know, we, we know from other research, if you look at unemployment insurance benefits, the rate of people that become unemployed right before their benefits uh, uh, um, run out, you know, you just see pe people are much more likely to be employed in a week or two um, before their benefits run out than, than they are 10 weeks before their benefits run out. So people all of a sudden, when they start running out of that money, go out and figure out how to find a job. So I, I think it's pretty clear that if, if um, the benefits were scaled back, um, more people would work. Now, would that cause some hardship for people? Yes, I think it would. Um, and so the question is, how do you trade those two things off? Because I think, um, you know, there have been some claims by businesses that they're struggling to find, you know, even some of them are struggling to find workers in a world in which, you know, the unemployment rate is 11, 12, 14%, whatever it is, I think the estimate in June was 11 for the for the nation. Um, so, you know, I, I do think you would see more people get jobs um, and start start looking for jobs if you low if you lowered that benefit. Um, would they be paying off as much of their credit uh, their credit card debt? Probably not. I think that would that would stop. Um, would they be spending other things? And I mean, we have to recognize that there has been a stimulus effect from these 600. I mean, people have continued to eat. They've continued to pay their rent. Um, they've continued to do other things um, that have added money to the economy. So those restaurants that, that have done well 
part of the reason they've done well is because of that stim that the money that people received in addition to the $1,200 stimulus check. And, and they're talking about another stimulus check. Um, so, so, you know, I, I do think, you know, on net, what's the net effect? Um, you know, I think if, if you cut the, if you cut the, the benefits some, some like you get more people working, probably a good thing. Um, and then you would need to provide them with resources since you, they would be having an income, but you still have to worry about, you know, um, other support for those people who, who aren't able to work. The, 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 you know, the single moms who can't find childcare because the child, you know, because their child, you know, they're, they're where they were sending their kids to get childcare closed or their school hasn't reopened. Um, because, or, and, and they're, they're, um, they're, um, learning from home. Um, so, you know, how do you support those folks while continuing to get people into the, into the labor market? So that's a difficult balance and, and it's what leads to fights amongst politicians when they're trying to figure out how much is, how much is enough. Let me, let me build on that though. You know, one thing we have to think about is not the, just the direct economic in, uh, effects, but also the sort of public health effects of what happens when we either encourage people not to work or uh, force them to work. Uh, notably, uh, in those trades that Professor Trotsky listed that are doing well under the current circumstances, uh, some of those industries tend to be notable in that they employ Latinos in large proportions. Uh, a lot of the U.S. Latino population could not stay home and, uh, and, and just take, take money. They, their jobs continued. And uh, as the pandemic continued to get worse in the United States, uh, one of the main populations hit hard uh, by the continued growth of COVID-19 was, was the Latino population. Now, it's not only because of the, their job you know, circumstances, there are other reasons, but that, that was one of them. Um, for a while, uh, people in younger age ranges, college age up to, to young adults, um, they were able to avoid the consequences of the pandemic uh, and, and the cases were uh, fairly low among those young populations uh, for a while. Uh, some of them were students, you know, college students and, uh, who were allowed to go entirely remote and, uh, and basically were guaranteed good grades, no matter what they did in their courses and or how little they learned in them. Uh, but as the, the pandemic, oh, oh and, and let me point out that those young adults are also the ones who tended to be employed in those restaurants, uh, the, the restaurant industry and, and some of the other service sectors that Professor Krosky said uh, were shut down, those tended to employ young workers who were able to stop working their jobs, go home, get a stimulus check uh, to stay home. So for a while, that population was protected from the, the pandemic. Uh, now, if all of a sudden those folks are forced to go out and find work um, or uh, figure out some other way to afford their expenses, uh, the public health consequences uh, could, could alter in two ways. Uh, first, what we know is that those young folks aren't staying home anymore. Uh, they're not sheltering in place anymore. They're not quarantining. They're going out to parties, to beaches. They're catching uh, the disease at a much higher rate and they're spreading it to their families. Forcing them to work instead of play, not clear is gonna have any uh, big impact uh, in that sense. If however, uh, you know, basically, I do disagree with Dr. Trotsky in one thing, which is uh, people are paying their rent. Well, some are but uh, a whole lot of people actually got um, uh, rent forgiveness, uh, or at least they were able to delay paying their rent for a long time. Um, it, it's not clear that the landlords who provide these properties can continue providing housing without getting paid for the, the housing they're providing. 
um, it, if it comes down at some point to moving out, uh, moving back home with your family, uh, uh, or or being homeless, uh, because people are uh, start to get required to pay their rent, uh, what we could see is those young people who are showing higher rates of COVID-19 taking it back home, taking it back home to their extended families. Uh, so that public health effect could be could be negative. So uh, you know, I've given you a couple of examples of how the policy consequences can also have disease consequences, uh, and, and it doesn't fit into a full picture. But I, I think it's important as people think about what Congress is doing that we realize it's not just about the economy and it's not just about paying bills. It's also about what you encourage people to do in terms of uh, their their reactions to the disease. And I, and I would I would agree. I think Professor Voss um, added a lot to the to my comments is that you do have to think about again, you know, we sent people home to fight the war against the disease. And if you send it back out, then, you know, in some sense, you're you're not fighting that war as effectively. Um, you know, I think there is still an open question. And he's right. Part of what is the, being debated in Congress right now is whether, you know, the um, the 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 prohibit. Uh, uh, prohibiting landlords from evicting, you know, the, the eviction, evicting individuals from their apartments, whether we, we make that a national policy as, a, as opposed to a policy that's been, that's been state, state le at the state level. Um, and, and that's another disagreement that they're having. So that's, that's an important consideration. Um, somehow landlords presumably do need to get money for, for the, um, their, the property that they own because they, they have to pay mortgages and, and, um, on, on that property as well. So it's an important consideration. Yeah, or, or there are elderly people with a second property who are trying to use that rent income to cover their retirements. Yep. Yes. When you look at what's being debated on the next aid bill in Congress, what are some areas you think that Democrats and Republicans might find area for compromise on? Well, let me, let me talk to you about where they're both being in some sense maybe uh, unrealistic, given that they need a bipartisan bill. I mean, you, you mentioned what, what the Democrats and the Republicans are asking. Uh, no surprise that basically what they're plunking for are things that send money to their supporters and their constituents. Uh, small business tends to support Republicans, and the workers uh, for whom the Democrats are arguing should keep getting $600. Uh, that tends to be a constituency that votes for the Democrats. Neither one in isolation is a great solution, because if you direct money to businesses that laid off their workers, uh, it's not clear you're doing much at all to improve uh, the employment situation. Uh, we have examples of this in the Great Depression. Uh, the Democrats sent a whole lot of the uh, farm relief money to the farmers, not to the farm workers. And what the farmers did with it was buy a bunch of machines so that they never had to hire those farm workers back. Um, and if, if that's what we do, only give the money to the businesses and give it to businesses who dumped their workforce, uh, it's not clear that, that that would have much of a stimulus effect uh, in, in terms of putting money in the pockets of those workers and getting them to purchase things. If what you do is, is dump the money on people who are not working so that it makes it easier for them to continue not working and to continue you know, ordering booze online and, and drinking at home, uh, as a lot of people have been doing, uh, then that's not going to stimulate a whole lot either, except maybe the, the alcohol industry. Dr. Trotsky, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, so um, I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to uh, disagree with my colleague, um, Professor Voss. He, he did a nice, uh, it was a nice um, discussion. Um, and, and it is, it's inherently, you know, 
you're, tr you're trading off, and that's part of what makes it so difficult. You're trading off health issues um, and the impact on, on, on the health of the, of, the, of the populace versus economic issues, um, which, you know, as an economist, I do, I do tend to focus a little more on, um, not that, I, but in no way, shape, or form should that be viewed as I don't, I don't think the health issues are, are unimportant because they certainly are. Um, and, and, and trying to figure out, trying to walk that line of how do you keep people um, as healthy as possible while minimizing the damage on the economy? And, and that's, that's a difficult issue. Um, you know, the other thing that, that is in there is in this, in this package is, is money for fighting the, um, uh, the, the disease, trying to push for vaccines, and also to better measure what's going on. I will say that one of the, what I consider one of the most disappointing things about this whole issue that's related to a number of the, uh, items as um, Professor Voss mentioned is we still don't have a really good idea of um, the severity of uh, good measures of the severity of this of this pandemic. Um, one of the things we we don't know what the um, infection fatality rate is. We have some guesses. Uh, we're not doing a very good job of counting who's died from COVID nineteen, but we're not doing a very good job of counting who even has it, given the given the fact that many people contract it with with very very few symptoms, so they never get tested. Um, you know, we look at the, the death rate. Actually, the death rate is kind of low relative, you know, and, it, and, um, and it's like it's a, it's a lagging indicator. Well, if it's a lagging indicator, it's lagging for a long period of time. So one of the things we've never done is we've never been, we do not do systematic randomized testing of populations of people so that we could get a good idea of how fast it's spreading. We don't know the, the um, you know, the, the, how, how quickly it's spreading through the, um, uh, the, the population and how that's changing over time. Um, there's so many, so much issues that we don't know, and we really haven't seen a lot of leadership on. We need to be testing people, testing lots of people. We need money for tracing, you know, because any sort of solution is, you know, uh, pretty clear. I think that younger people are less likely to die from this than older people. Death is not the only outcome one should be concerned about, but but even these the, the severe outcomes are seem fairly small, uh, much less common amongst the young. Um, and so, but, but we still need to protect the elderly because they're a lot more likely to die. They're multiple times more likely to die, uh, than the young if they can, uh, contract it. So that means we've got to figure out a way to, to not have those two populations interact or to keep track of them when they do interact. Um, and, and without knowing and, and studying and trying to understand and collecting good data on it, 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 we're just hamstrung when coming up with more effective policies other than, you know, let's shut down all restaurants and business and, and bars um, and, and things like that, which which are kind of blunt policy instruments, to be perfectly honest. Um, and so it would be useful if we could come up, if we could collect the data necessary to, de uh, to design some much more effective policies. Because if you can isolate the elderly and the most ones most likely to get ill and let everybody else go out and work, you know, you can probably run an economy pretty successfully while minimizing the health damages um, um, successfully as well. But to do that, you, you, need, you need better data than we have right now.
That's all the time we have for this week's conversation, but thank you to Dr. Stephen Voss, Professor of Political Science, and Dr. Kenneth Trotsky, Professor of Economics, both professors here at the University of Kentucky, for joining us to make sense of Congress's aid bill in progress and the current state of the economy. Thanks to our writer for the week, Jalen Washington Mays. Join us next week for another episode of Campus Voices. I'm Noel Oldham, and you're listening to WRFL Lexington.